0: Can you believe it? Uh, this is this is officially, today is officially the 10th Sunday. The 10th Sunday that we've been gathering together in this online manner. And I'll tell you, you know, throughout these 10 weeks, even as we stand here at week number 10, there, there's a lot of things I don't know about this whole situation. A lot of questions that I just don't have firm answers for uh, man one thing i do know is that we we all miss being able to meet together here in person and and we're longing for that day when we'll be able to do that once again and i'm i'm right there with you i i, I want to say I, I appreciate all the the comments of support that we as elders have have received from you we're we're so grateful for for how you've been praying for us, praying for the church as a whole. Um, know that know that your elders are, are intently seeking God's leading for us. We, we want to honor God in this time. We want to serve our church body in this time. And we want to put forth good witness to our community during this time as well. So know that Know that that's, uh, that's where we're coming from as elders as we seek to, to navigate through this. Um, one thing we can collectively rejoice over this morning, we finished Lamentations. woo we did it. We got through it. Uh, man, I'm, I'm, I'm glad Lamentations isn't, isn't any longer than five chapters. Uh, I'm not sure how much longer I could have gone on in a sermon series like that. There's, there's, just, uh, there's definitely reasons for hope, and, and we, of course we sought to keep those in focus throughout the study, but, but the continual descriptions about the hardships faced by the people, are, they're just tough to read. They're, they're tough to dwell on. So, so this morning we are embarking on uh, a new journey through a biblical book. We are starting, uh, this time we're starting through 2 Corinthians actually been almost exactly two years since we started through 1 Corinthians together. Today we start 2 Corinthians. Now, before we dive into the book, before we look at the first 11 verses this morning, let's talk about a little bit of background, just to get us all on the same page. If you remember from our study of 1 Corinthians... Uh, These letters were written by Paul to the believers in the city of Corinth. Corinth was a a Greco-Roman city in Greece. Uh, The city itself was a bustling center of trade, uh, tourism, arts, sexual immorality, and, and there was a strong Roman military presence there as well. But as we talk about background for the book this morning, I I want to focus more on the history of the relationship between Paul and the church as opposed to details about the city itself. Um, so, So while we have two letters from Paul to Corinth in our Bibles, we can be very certain that those were not the only two letters that Paul wrote to the church, nor were they the only correspondence that he had with them. We know from the book of Acts that Paul first visited Corinth for about 18 months and and planted a church there during that time. Now, after leaving Corinth after those 18 months, it seems highly likely that Paul wrote a a first letter to the church with, with further instruction, further guidance, um, that letter has been lost. It's unknown to us. As Paul moved on, as he, as he landed in Ephesus for, for quite a considerable amount of time, while he was there in Ephesus, he received a report about the church in Corinth. Some, some people from Chloe's household came to Paul, and, and uh, this household was presumably part of the church in Corinth, and they gave Paul an update So in response to that report and in response to some questions that the church had for Paul, he wrote a second letter to the church there. And of course, we have that in our Bibles as 1 Corinthians. So I I know it's kind of confusing, but 1 Corinthians is probably at least the second letter that Paul wrote to the church there. Now the details are a bit unclear what happened regarding after that letter of 1 Corinthians was delivered. It seems that Timothy was the one who took the letter from Paul, took 1 Corinthians to the church in Corinth, and then presumably Timothy came back to Paul after he had delivered the letter, and and it seems that Timothy brought a report back about the church. Apparently the report was so bad that it It made Paul change his plans, and he actually made an unscheduled visit back to Corinth. As we'll see in chapter 2, verse 1 in a a couple weeks, it it doesn't seem that that visit went very well. Paul described it as painful. It, It seems that he was personally attacked by a member of the church while he was there during that visit. So Paul then left Corinth, he returned to Ephesus and wrote a third letter in response to the visit that he had just had. And it seems that that third letter was a pretty emotional one, as is hinted at in chapter 2. Apparently the letter was blunt, it was direct, and it seems that the church responded well to this third letter that Paul wrote to them. Well, at some later point, the church was infiltrated by people from Judea who were seeking to undermine Paul, undermine Paul's ministry. And so in response to that, Paul wrote a fourth letter to the church, and that would be 2 Corinthians, which we are going to begin this morning. He sent that letter to Corinth with Titus this time. So, so in, uh, in addition to validating his credibility as an apostle, In in this fourth letter. We also see that Paul addresses matters of strength and weakness. We're going to see that Paul made preparations for an offering that was was being gathered in support of the church in Jerusalem, which was facing some difficult circumstances. And and the reason I I share all that with you this morning, these letters that we don't have anymore in the background, the reason I I, I share that is, is to help us understand that the, the kind of relationship that Paul had with the church in Corinth, with the believers there. It was not a relationship that was surface level. Not at all. They, they'd been through a lot together. Paul had not been shy about saying difficult things to the church there. They were necessary things, but difficult, and he, he spoke them anyway. He also cared very deeply for the church, as he had spent a lot of time there. He wrote, uh, had written multiple letters to them. So, so when we go through 2 Corinthians, we're not, we're not reading words that were written in a vacuum by someone who was quite removed from the situation. Uh, the, the, ex- the complete opposite, actually. Paul was personally invested in this church, and he had a firsthand knowledge of what they were dealing with as a church now as we as we prepare to start through chapter one um, I'm going to warn you this morning's uh, sermon title does have the word suffering in it again I I just want to be up front with you about that I know I said we've finished lamentations and we have uh, but the opening verses of 2 Corinthians talk about suffering, right? It's like it's like a same song, second verse. You know, <laughs> seems we can't just can't get away from from that topic lately. Uh, I will say that the sermon title also has the word blessing in it. the The title this morning is the blessings of suffering. So, so at least we have that going for us. But. All that being said, let's, uh, let's begin working through this book, starting in chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now these, these these first words are are typical of how Paul would have ordinarily opened a letter. Uh, he began by stating who he was, you know, along with his role as an apostle. Uh, interestingly, he also states that uh, that his role as an apostle was by the will of God. It's by the will of God. This will come into play in later chapters as as Paul addresses those who questioned. His apostleship. Uh, we also see that the letter was written to the church within Corinth, but, but also to be shared with the believers in the surrounding area as well. So, so now that we've gotten through the formalities and the pleasantries at the beginning, let, let's dive into what Paul says here as he gets into the meat of things. Verse 3, when he starts talking about suffering. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those those who are in any affliction, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation." And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. As we heard here, Paul Paul makes a, a direct, repeated correlation between suffering and comfort. Uh, Paul's confident that that any suffering uh, which he or the church in Corinth faces will be met with comfort from God. In fact, Paul refers to God as the God of all comfort. So the question that that I want to examine this morning is, what exactly does Paul mean when he says that we will be given comfort from God in the face of suffering? What what does that comfort mean? Practically look like? When we think of comfort, we probably think along one of two lines, or or, or maybe both together. First, we might envision comfort as physical pain and suffering being eased. So when a person in medical distress is, is said to be resting comfortably. We understand that to mean that they aren't feeling physical pain. So one way to view comfort is the alleviation of physical pain. Second, we might envision comfort as emotional stress or pain being eased. We can can give emotional comfort to a person by by consoling them when they are sad or, or speaking words of hope to them when they are scared. In this instance, comfort is the alleviation of emotional pain. And, and while those are all legitimate understandings of the word comfort, the, the biblical usage of the word is, is often something much more robust than that. The biblical idea of comfort often has as much to do with God's presence as it does with the alleviation of either emotional or physical pain. The, the Greek word used in this passage is, well, there's a couple, but it's the same root word. It's either parakalesis or parakaleo. Those are the Greek words used here. It's, it's, it's a word and it's, it's an idea that often speaks of calling near. And in fact, in some Christian traditions, the Holy Spirit himself is referred to as the paraclete. So this is a reference to the fact that God himself is the source of all comfort, as as Paul has already mentioned in verse 3. So one of the Holy Spirit's roles as his presence dwells within God's people is to bring comfort to us. And, And so he's called the paraclete. God's presence with us is is the central component to the comfort he gives. And and in fact, as as I was reading this passage in the message paraphrase, I think think there it does a wonderful job of expressing this truth. And so I wanted to read for you just a couple verses. Uh, Listen to verses three and four from the message. All praise to the God and Father of our Master, Jesus the Messiah, Father of all mercy, God of all healing counsel. He comes alongside us when we go through hard times. And before you know it, he brings us alongside someone else who is going through hard times so that we can be there for that person just as God was there for us. So the comfort of God is inextricably linked with his presence in our lives. And and, and this theme comes out other places in scripture as well. For example, we are probably all well acquainted with Psalm 23. It's a psalm that is used primarily as a way to provide comfort, to communicate comfort to a person. And listen to the connection between comfort and, and God's presence In verse 4 specifically, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, there's the suffering right there, right? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Why will I fear no evil? For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The comfort comes from God's presence, for you are with me. To remove God's presence from the equation is, is to remove all comfort. Um, one other example from Revelation chapter 21 speaks about uh, the new heaven and the new earth. It, is, uh, it presents a reality when all suffering, all pain has been done away with. And again, listen to the link between comfort and presence of God. Chapter 21, verses 3 and 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them As their God, it's talking about presence there. And then what's the outcome? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. We cannot understand or experience true comfort if it is removed from the presence of God within us. And I would argue likewise that as we experience comfort from God's presence, we are then called to take that comfort to others as well. Paul talks about that here in chapter 1. We are to share with them the possibility and the reality of God's presence in their lives also. True comfort comes not, not from telling a, a person that the old platitude that everything will be all right, True comfort comes when we assure them that God will not leave them nor forsake them. That's where true comfort comes from. The real presence of God in our lives is truly an incredible blessing. It's an incredible blessing. And, and, and if we're honest with ourselves, it's a blessing which we are more aware of during our sufferings than we are during the easy times of life. And we've probably all been there, haven't we? Do we think about and feel God's presence more in the easy times or in the difficult times? I know for me, I dwell upon his presence more in the difficulties of life. We probably all naturally desire to avoid suffering in our lives. We've maybe even asked God, why are you allowing this? Why have you allowed this suffering to come upon me? But how much would we recognize his presence in our lives if we never faced suffering of any kind? It's an interesting thing to think about, isn't it? Rather, it's through our suffering that we experience, in a deeper way, the presence of God. Uh, when Paul writes in Romans chapter 8 that, that for those who love God, he works all things together for good, I think this is one of the primary avenues of that working out for good. The, the difficulties we face can and often do lead us to the good place of greater intimacy with God. I mean, Paul goes on in that passage in Romans 8 to say that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can separate us from God himself. God has come to us and will be with us through every trial that we face. So as we face suffering, we we not only experience God's presence, we also experience greater reliance upon God himself. Listen to how Paul communicates this, starting in verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again." Paul talks specifically about a time of suffering which he recently experienced. So what was a general concept in verses 3 through 7 gets applied to a real-life situation in verses 8 through 10. We're not told exactly what Paul faced, but it was something so, so serious that he felt like he had a death sentence upon him. Paul was in a situation where it seemed like he had no escape. And listen again to the incredible outcome of that situation, the second half of verse 9. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. Because of that hopeless situation, Paul had no choice. He, He says, I was forced to rely upon God. And as he did so, he found out that God delivered him from that deadly peril, so So in the example of Paul's suffering, we see another blessing of suffering, and that is greater reliance upon God. When you think about it, God has created us as humans with an incredible amount of intellect and, and skills. And reasoning, ability, it's no wonder that we are often tempted to rely on ourselves rather than God. Many times it requires suffering and hardship to get us to turn our face to God and rely upon Him. When, when the smooth, straight road upon which we are walking in life becomes crooked and rocky and uncertain, how do we respond to God in that moment? You know, do, we, do, I, do, do I wag my finger at him and, and, and ask God, what in the world are you doing? And, and maybe you ought to change things back to how they used to be. Or, or do I recognize an opportunity to hold more tightly to him and allow him to carry me along this new terrain? You know, I think that's a question that, that we as a church body ought to be asking collectively right now as we stare down this new landscape before us. I know the temptation for me is, is, to, is to assume that the solution is to get back together in this room as soon as possible. And, and make no mistake, the body of Christ is meant to be made up of people who gather together and worship God. But perhaps we shouldn't jump too quickly to a desire to return to how things used to be and instead see where there might be an opportunity in this time to increase our reliance upon God himself. Something to think about. Paul came out of his ordeal with an understanding of the blessings which resulted from his suffering. Will we do the same, or will we look back on the spring of 2020 as, as this pointless time that just frustrated and bothered us? Will we, will we miss the blessings that can result from the hardships that we now face? Look with me at the last verse this morning. Verse 11, you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. What ought to be the outcome of an increased awareness of God's presence and an increased reliance upon God's, pr- uh, God's power? It ought to be increased prayer to God. The more we understand that God is with us every step of the way and the more we understand that God's power is greater than our own, the more we ought to find ourselves turning to him in prayer. And it's not just turning to God in prayer regarding our own personal situations, but turning to God in prayer for those around us as well. Paul urged the believers in Corinth to join with him in prayer to God. And there's a a great unity that is fostered among the body of Christ when there's prayer amongst the group. Uh, And and maybe you've heard the old cliche that uh, the family who prays together stays together. Uh, I think that's true. And I think it's also true that the church family which prays together stays together also. That there's a unifying effect that takes place when the church body collectively and corporately comes before God in, in reliance on Him. You know, as we as we spend time in prayer together, we, we realize that we come to collectively rely upon God's power and God's wisdom. It leads to greater works being done among us. Um, as we spend time in prayer together, we, we collectively become more aware of God's presence in our midst. It leads to an increased comfort, I think, in, in the presence of suffering. And, and as those things happen through prayer together, then, then we just naturally thank God for, uh, for what he's done, for, for how we see him with us, for how he, we see him working through us. It leads to expressions of thanksgiving. So here's what I'd like us to do to conclude our time this morning. I'd like us to join together in prayer. Now, I I realize the physical separation of our church right now makes this a little interesting, but I don't think it makes it any less effective. Uh, In fact, we might have the added blessing of being able to easily pray together with our households, this morning. So, so here's what I want you to do. I'm not going to close the service with prayer this morning. I'm simply going to give you some instructions and, and then that will be the end of the video, the end of the online worship service today. So, so what I want you to do is gather together whoever is in your household this morning. So you know if you've got young children uh, in another room, go grab them Gather together as a family and, and spend a few moments sharing together any, any areas of, of suffering or hardship that you felt over these last couple of months. And, and, and as you share that together, remind one another that God has promised to be with us through that. Remind one another of the blessing of being able to rely upon God Through those hardships and then after you've you've shared those things as a family pray together Uh, spend spend time whether it's three minutes or 30 minutes however long praying together as a family even if you were watching by yourself this morning I would still encourage you uh, to to come to the Lord in prayer we are going to collectively approach the throne of God together this morning might not be in the building together today but we can still come to God together. So may we may we collectively see this difficult season not as something to just get through but as a time of blessing in which God has good things planned for us both individually and as a church body. So go ahead and, and spend some time and prayer together. hope you have a blessed week.